Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's genuinely a delight today to have John Rosso, who is one of my muses. He's a mentor to many of us in Sandler. John, could you give a quick introduction to who you are and your journey to where you are today? Sure, thanks. Uh, really appreciate you having me on, Marcus, as well. John Rosso, a Sandler trainer for 26 years. Started out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, sold that office, and am now in Charleston, South Carolina, United States, and uh, just excited to be uh, part of the Sandler Network, even more so today than I was 26 years ago. Excellent. John's underplaying his hand a little bit. He's a David Sandler Award winner, which means that he's been voted by the entire Sandler Network because we all rate him so highly. So you're in for a right royal roller coaster here. John, tell me something. What are the four most common questions that you're being asked by owners and business leaders about how people are going to be able to make it through the COVID crisis and come out the other end stronger or certainly thriving? I think there's a couple. Some are more in the present tense. Some are, well, how do we get our people pivoting in this environment by taking away some of those tools that they used when they were face-to-face? So how do we even get them pivoting? And it is shocking is a little broad word, a little bit too much of a word, but it is shocking to see how unprepared many of the outside field salespeople may be, especially in industries like industrial sales, how to begin to pivot and use some of the technology tools. So how do we get our people prepared is one. How do we get people to keep the commitments they made prior to COVID during this uncertainty, right? So people have made commitments and now they're starting to think about reneging or changing the ground rules. The third question would be, how do we get people to commit during COVID, right? Because of all this uncertainty, we're trying to go ahead and still bring business in. And then fourth, what are the things we need to do now to come out of this crisis even stronger and well-positioned than our competition? So those are kind of the four questions I'm hearing now from good managers. The less good managers kind of still have their heads in the sand and are hunkering down and are sort of hoping and praying that this whole thing sort of goes by. And they're missing that train because their customers are somebody else's best prospects and the people who are prepared and going after those best prospects. What I'm seeing with my clients certainly is that many of them are having their best month ever because they were prepared and they're doing business as usual. And to pick up on your point of many of the salespeople who just haven't been prepared to pivot, why is it that they, first of all, weren't? And secondly, why are they continuing to bury their heads in the sand? You know, I think, and again, I'm talking about the broader market, not necessarily the Sandler client base. No, no. Um, I think when you when you look at the amount of people who are, not everyone's an A player or even an A minus player. One of the things I'll do when I interview for my clients, interview salespeople, I'll say, do you have any hobbies, Marcus? Yeah, I golf. Tremendous. Do you do anything to improve? Every Friday, I t- every Saturday, I take a lesson. Good for you. Good for you. You've been selling how long? 26 years. Tell me about the last business book you read, sales book, seminar, workshop you went, you went to improve, 80% of them can't even come up with anything. And if they say, well, I did read a book, I remember reading Good to Great. I'm like, well, good. Tell me one concept you got out of that book. They cannot do Best it. edition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think people naturally, this is the, the general people, naturally gravitate to be, to be at leasters, right? 
to go to that spot where we're comfortable. And what we like to do is sort of take a look at what's happening today and then crazily project it out as if that's never going to change. And then we're always surprised when it changes and it's always changing. So there's a lot of at leasters out there and our job, and it's a phrase we hear tossed around by the book Great by Choice by Jim Collins as well, is to be that 10Xer, right? How do we make the decision that we are going to be the high performers who bring in 10 times more profit, revenue, client satisfaction than our peers in the, uh, in the selling world? I've noticed, incidentally, that in the last two weeks, I've taken on six 10Xers. These are people who have invested in themselves. They're paying their own money to come on training, and they're seeing this as an opportunity to come out stronger. One of the things that came out of the Sander research study last year around management and leadership was that only 6% of managers in sales management are qualified for the role. Now, I don't blame them. I genuinely have a lot of empathy and feeling for them because they were typically tapped on the shoulder because they were a top performing salesperson. Sure. What is it that leadership needs to do to change their thinking? and change their perception of sales and sales management in order to stop making those fundamental promotion and hiring mistakes and prepare sales managers. Because the good ones are adapting to this like you wouldn't believe. But there are so many out there that are just tearing their hair out. And they've been found wanting because they don't know how to coach, they don't know how to develop, they don't have the pastoral skills, the accountability skills. What does leadership need to do to change their thinking so that they're better prepared for the next crisis? Because this won't be the last. Sure. I think it's a fundamental lack of awareness on a lot of business leaders on what skills are even necessary for sales management. You can talk to actually pretty successful business owners and, and ask them what are the key competencies or what are the key skill sets, and they can throw out something like coaching, but I don't think they have even a real good sense. And Oftentimes, as you said, it was, it was the A-player salesperson who might have been promoted. And now I make a fundamental error in that, well, you're a high-quality individual, you'll be able to figure this thing out instead of really being able to get them the kind of help they need. I think there's a huge expectation gap, right? If you think about, if you think about the real coaches, when we think about coaching football or American football or whatever it would be, you know, it's the coach's number one obligation. If they're not coaching, they are fired, right? If the player is not willing to accept coaches, they would be let go from the team. I mean, it really is a coaching environment because there's so much time and energy and money at stake. And yet from a business perspective, we've got in many cases as much or more time and effort and money at stake. But I think it's, it's, it's a mindset that even at the top level, there's not an awareness as to what are the key skill sets. And so I think those A players look to do the best, but as they look to do the best, they're also pulled in multiple directions because they're so much better than their team from a sales perspective. So now they move out of the coaching role into the selling role, which helps, I mean, I guess it helps short term, but it doesn't help the sales manager become a better coach. And it allows them to keep lower performers on board who aren't necessarily producing because the top line numbers look on average pretty decent. So it's kind of like the self-fulfilling prophecy that continues. I interviewed a really interesting chap. He's an academic now, but he built eight businesses, sold five of them, 
And I asked him a question and said, how do you juggle managing all those businesses? And said, well, juggling is the problem. If you're spinning seven different plates, you know, some of them are going to drop. So get them off the ground and then hire people who can manage them and then spend 50% of your time teaching. Now, this was a guy who was running a group of eight companies. And what was really interesting was he was teaching his people constantly. That was his number one job. Mm-hmm. And this was the, you know, the, uh, the chairman of a group. And as chairman or chief executive, he was out there in the field with his people, helping them to do their jobs better, whether they were in sales, whether they were in management, whether in software development. It didn't make any difference. He was spending his time teaching, and that was part of the culture. And he made a really interesting observation, and I'm stealing it, so I'll give him credit once, uh, Phil McGowan. (laughs) That was, stop calling it training, call it marketing. If it's marketing, which is anything that touches the customer, anything that affects their experience of you, you, your company, your brand, then everyone is working towards that common purpose. And I thought that was a wonderful insight because it, if it's stuck in learning and development or in HR or the training manager or it's coming out the training budget, then chances are it will be seen as a distraction and getting your salespeople off the road. Coaching is one of those things that coaches, uh, managers complain about not having time to do. But the reason they don't have time is because they're not coaching. So it, it strikes me as crazy that, yeah. Yeah, that so many people find the symptom and use that as an excuse for not looking at the cause. So if we look at the current situation, with COVID, we've got a lot of people who are scared, and they're from the customer side, Mm -hmm. and they're pushing back. What are you advising your clients to do in order to keep those opportunities alive when they're real? Because I think a lot of pipeline was never real. And it's been, this COVID has given people an excuse just to tell them no thanks. What yeah. are you doing with your clients to help yeah. them get that stuff I, I think on? a couple of things. Before I go there, I'll, I'll, I'll chat a little bit about your teaching story. I think if you asked uh, 100 leaders, CEOs, what's their core competency? I don't think you'd have one, two, or three say teaching. So that's a really cool insight by the gentleman you just referred to. Okay. I think yeah. from, a, from an uncertainty point of view, you know, one of the things we preach about or I preach about endlessly in, in Sandler is, is that belief wheel, right? Our beliefs, the things we believe, the things we know to be true based upon our own past experiences lead to the judgments we make about others because we don't see the world the way it is. We see the world the way we are. And those judgments lead to actions. Actions lead to results and results typically are self-fulfilling prophecy. And so Jody Williamson in our last Sandler Summit in Orlando sort of introduced that ethical selling model. And I've been using it a lot, which is, again, it's unethical to sell somebody something they don't need. We all agree. It's also unethical not to sell somebody something they do need. And I think so many times I've got to be able to pull it back and find out from your world as the salesperson that you're uncertain. You're not even convinced. You don't believe. You're not so sure your customer should make the move in this time of uncertainty. And selling is really a matter of changing beliefs. You can only sell, truly, if you've got one belief, the prospect of the customer has another belief, and then you're successful at leading them from their belief to your belief. If we all agree on the same thing, there's not even a selling opportunity. So in a lot of cases, it comes down to that head trash or that belief system where they they feel 
they think for the customer wrongly. Well, if I were in their shoes, I think I don't think I would. I think it would be too risky for them to be able to. And that's not the right way to think. I mean, so first of all, you've got to make your make sure yourself is sold. If you're personally sold, then the words come a whole easier. It's not about tactics and technique as much if you're sold. And if you're sold and you believe, I was on LinkedIn today and and someone from Gong, G-O-N-G, the uh, yep. conversational intelligence platform, Sarah Bracia, said, uh, grind, grind, grind. And I responded today on LinkedIn that said, it is a grind. We grind every single day. There's nothing wrong with that, but we're grinding kind of in the context of the greater good, right? We grind because in the end, we provide so much value to the world and impact the world and it's a better place because we have sold you. And I think if you can come to that belief system and you can look someone straight in the eye and really believe in your heart of hearts that if they make that commitment now, that they're gonna distance themselves from the competition because everybody else is uncertain. And that if you can go ahead and make the key strategic decisions guided by me to help you get there, you're gonna come out of this stronger and you're gonna create distance between you and the competitor and you're gonna impact the world at a greater level. If a salesperson can sort of have that belief system Listen, you need structure, you need training, you need teaching, you need tactics, you need strategy, but those words will come a whole lot easier. So we're usually the problem. I couldn't agree more. I mean, years ago, I remember seeing you on stage and you said something that stuck with me forever, which is don't use the technique as a weapon. I'd take that further. And I think what we should be doing is using it as a shield to protect the prospect from themselves, from the Mm -hmm. bad decisions. And what's really interesting is through the right intent, and this is, again, a fundamental shift in thinking, which is you're not there to sell them anything. You're there to establish, can I help? If I can help, am I the best and the right person to help them? If I am, then I have an obligation to help them go through that process of discovery. Now, why is it so little time and energy and effort is spent in the sales profession on that side of selling? I don't know that I have an answer to it. I, you know, I'm happy we, Sandler, you and I, are in that world where we can help them make lasting changes. Again, behavior doesn't change overnight, which is why we're in the ongoing reinforcement coaching and training business. But uh, well, there's a lot of mixed messages in cultures, right? There's a lot of me, 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 get what you can, take the money, always be closing. You know, we've all heard these phrases and certainly politicians, salespeople, lawyers, we all get, you know, we all get dumped into the same vat of people who have overpromised and underdelivered. And so we've come to expect that, which is where the dysfunction of selling comes from. Here you and I are trying to have a conversation to see if we can help you, but you've got your guard up as a prospect because how do you know who to trust? I mean, it's a little harder to do that. So I love you using the the idea that technique is now a, a shield. And while COVID is certainly no one's best friend, I've asked a lot of salespeople on my my training lately, is it an easier time or a more difficult time to bond? And I'm so shocked that 50, it's 50, 50, 50% of the people say it's a harder time to bond. Here we have a, it's crazy. 50% of the people say it's, and again, these are the folks I think who struggle at the 10X level. They're not there because here we have, by definition, right? bonding, a shared common experience. And people are saying it's harder to bond, 50% of them. The other 50% are like, oh my gosh, it's so much 
easier. And, and what COVID has allowed, especially if we've got the right intent, right? What COVID has allowed is to be able to dive deeper into the real issues, examples, and impacts that your prospects and customers are experiencing in a way that's highly empathetic, right? As opposed to being a sales move or a sales tactic. So in that regard, the ability to generate even closer relationships and have a greater impact for the folks who are able to play above the line at the 10X level, it's a tremendous opportunity. And so your six new people who are 10Xers who joined your mastery program are geniuses in that regard because they are going to create so much distance and become so much better in this environment. Taking the question slightly further then. So we're in a situation now where there are a lot of scared prospects out there. How can we use our genuine common interest and our empathy in order to help them understand that we're there to help? Uh, We're not there to sell them something. We're there to genuinely help them get out of the hole that they're in and come out, at least survive, but if not better than that, thrive and come out stronger, better, faster, leaner. I'll give you a couple of answers to that. I've had one client that's a financial planning client in Pittsburgh, a company called Heffern Tillotson, a tremendous people, a tremendous intent, highly ethical company. And think about it in 2008 when the market crashed. And again, we've got a 2020 crash as well, 2008, 2009. They felt they had a moral and ethical responsibility because you, as their customer and or prospect, were very scared. What you wanted to do was go to cash right? I want to go to cash. Now, if you went to cash in 2008, you still haven't made it back, right? So their job was to be able to be certainty amid uncertainty, to feel confident in their recommendations and lead you through that path where you made the right decision. Because if you made the wrong decision, it was going to have major impacts on your life. And I think the same thing is happening here. That same psyche that says, retreat, retreat, be safe, right? Don't make any moves. Doesn't mean it's right for you. If it was right, we'd all be making money in the markets instead of losing in the mass hysteria that comes. So it's our job to understand that that's the way people think. And we've got to be able to build that trust quickly. Now, you know, as you know, as good as anyone in the world, there are tools like the upfront contract that help us do that well. Now, when I learned the upfront contract, which included giving people permission to say no, I thought it was the craziest thing I've ever heard in the world. Why on earth, especially when I came from IBM, where they taught me that if I can get you nodding seven times in a row, you were going to buy. So only ask questions people say yes to. But now, took probably two years where that went from being kind of a cool technique to 100% complete authenticity, right? The ability to say, let's talk a little bit about what you've got going on. And if in the end, it makes sense for you to stay, stay put, make no decisions, and that's the right thing for you to do. Marcus, do that. I want to make sure we're we're both aligned. We want you to make the right decision. So one is, I think, being really clear. And the word we use, as you know, in Sandler is being disarmingly honest Mm -hmm. to be able to break down trust barriers. I think the other advantage is, again, the world is not about me. The minute I give you facts, the minute I give you who I am and how I, you know, who I am and what I do, your brain is wired to resist that. Right? Because the world is not about me. So taking the time to understand your position, leading you typically through questions, and third-party stories are tremendously helpful. Right, Because a third-party story helps bring uncertainty down because people in your position, similar to you in similar circumstances, 
have made similar decisions and the results have worked out. And we don't have enough information all the time to make decisions. So we rely on things like social proof and third-party stories to help. So I think those are a couple of key tools. But people can smell it. Just like if you're a salesperson, Sandler would say, if you were a salesperson, the prospect was like a Doberman. They could smell fear, right? (laughs) Prospects can sort of smell our authenticity as well. And I think if you really believe, as you said earlier, that we're two business people, in the end, we want to do the right thing. Let's really understand what you've got going on. And truly, if we can't help you get there, there's no harm, no foul. It's sort of like I use the phrase, hey, we're the cure for sales cancer. Well, if I really had the cure for COVID, would I be hesitant to reach out to somebody? Heck no. If they said to me, listen, John, I'm sorry to say I don't have COVID. I'm not going to be offended. My feelings aren't hurt. What I would say is good for you. I'm glad you're keeping safe question for you because it's a crazy world and certainly a lot of folks are suffering. If you were me in this world, understanding your own network or the people who you live with, work with, know, are there others I should be reaching out to who may be suffering from this? That's what I would say if I truly had the cure. And if we're believing in what we do as salespeople, we do have the cure for people who fit our prospect world. And we've got to be able to bring that conviction with us. Okay. This is really interesting. Let me take this to the other end. What are the three questions that owners and leaders should be asking you that they're not? I think one is they probably should be saying, how can I use this time to separate the wheat from the the chaff, right? To, To say who on my team truly has the ability to adapt, to pivot, to grow, and to be that 10Xer who can lead our company to the next level, and who's not ready to do that, right? That's a question they should be asking. I think another question they should be asking is, how are others who are successfully pivoting this time, how are they using this time effectively to sharpen that saw, right? To be not prepared only to weather this storm, but to do the things And as you know, Marcus, we talk about a methodology called CARE. How do you segment your accounts to keep, attain, recapture, expand? But how do we not only weather this time, but how do we really get positioned to be the most trusted advisor to our prospects and clients in that world? And again, I think thirdly, a question is, and I'll tell another third-party story, but how are others really building the vision for their organizations and raising expectations as to what the journey will look like for their organization to safely exit this and excel. You know, instead of worrying about, well, how do we get past tomorrow, right? You know, without hope, people perish. Without vision, the people perish. You know, the willingness to really build good visions that go beyond this and inspire their team to perform and to, and to be great. I think those are three kind of cool questions that folks should be asking that I don't hear a lot. Those are excellent. I would add one thing to care, and I think it sure. should be the scare model, and there should be the sack element. Now is the time to cull those deadbeat, pain in the neck, difficult customers who don't pay you well, don't pay on time, make your life a misery, suck up your resource and get rid of them. But again, people who don't have a strong pipeline Hang on to the dead. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, the the ridiculous, you know, from Dan's pink book called To Sell as Human, he talks about salespeople being pathologically optimistic, and we don't want (laughs) to let go of that bad. I like scare. I may steal that. That may be the British version. I've said the U.S. version is freak, fire, recapture, expand, 
attain and keep. So, but I like the scare version. It's a little cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) On that note around being the company totem, what are you seeing the best leaders doing in order to offer hope and to do the Winston Churchill, we should fight them on the uh, beaches? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, Again, I'm not sure why I'm mentioning it so much this time, but but one of my favorite books is a book called Great by Choice by Jim Collins and, and a co-author. In it, he talks about the Stockdale paradox, right? The Stockdale paradox is Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, for those of you who may not have heard of the Admiral Stockdale, was a uh, U.S. admiral and the highest ranking officer at the Hanoi Hilton, which was the Vietnam, Vietnamese POW war camps. And uh, in it, he he talked about the pessimists we're going to die tomorrow. We're going to die. Everyone's going to die. We're all going to get killed. They all died. The strange part was the optimist. We're going to be out of here by Christmas. Everything's going to be fine. We'll be out of here in no time. They died, right? And they died mostly of a broken heart because they were constantly disappointed. So the Stockdale paradox said, you've got to remain optimistic, right? Even as you confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, because you can never afford to lose that optimism. I think a good vision, I think that good totem in your word, really is a combination of both positives and negatives, heaven and hell. Jack Welch, who's been both praised and and less than praised, who was the CEO of GE way back when, he had a pretty good heaven and hell vision. When he took over, everybody thinks GE was suffering, but GE was actually doing well. It was just complacent. And then he came up with uh, with something that said, we will be number one or number two in every single market we choose to serve, pretty aspirational, Mm -hmm. until you hit hell, or we're going to fix it, close it, and sell it. Right. So if you think about motivation being both push and pull, it's interesting to be able to do that. So you've got to be able to build that vision. But again, John Cotter's got some stuff on 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 crisis, you know, and a crisis helps change. Right. A crisis can be a, an impetus to change. So it's not just merely build, building a Pollyanna vision of what we could be, but having a reason and a motivation and a crisis at times that can help us get there. So I think, I think those are some of the elements of a good vision. Another quote from Winston Churchill is, never waste a good crisis. Right. <laughs> and what I'm seeing the best of my clients and the best out there doing is they are doubling down on their thinking. They're looking at this as an opportunity to approach their business with a, fr- a blank sheet of paper. And they're asking themselves questions like, do I want this person or do I want this customer or this partner next year? If not, well, now is the time to move them on and let them go and mess up someone else's balance sheet and uh, tie up someone else's management. If we are going to come out of this bigger, better, faster, stronger, what do we need to do in order to uh, achieve that outcome? And they're looking at the inputs, not the result. They're looking at what they can control. So, you know, that the desiderata, you know, God give me the patience to mm-hmm. accept what I can't control and change what I can. So again, what are the better questions? Again, I think it was you who said this and it stuck in my mind, is if you want better answers, ask better questions. What are the better questions that the best leaders out there are asking? I think folks who who believe it will get back completely to normal, well, listen, let's wait it out and get back completely normal or making a mistake. Again, I think this is the time to begin to sit back and think about your business model and think about 
how they go about really bringing in. There's nothing more satisfying. I don't know if there's anything more satisfying. There probably is, but nothing more satisfying in business than actually having an ideal customer and then being a central part of them achieving their vision and them recognizing you to be their partner and helping them get there. I think about the clients we have and man, that's been a fulfilling thing to be able to do. So I think as they look forward, I think one of the key things, and I've been talking a lot about this a lot in Sandler, is the key really, even in, when we're qualifying those customers, to qualify them conceptually. Most people think about qualifying as, are they willing and able to invest the time and energy? Are they willing and able to invest the money? You know, Are they willing and able to invest their political capital to champion this up the cause? I think qualifying conceptually is sharing key philosophies, right? Because I, I want to match, listen, I'd like your money, I'll take your money, but this has got to be long-term, right? If we really want to make, if, if you really want to achieve your vision as my customer, as my client, and we really want to be able to he- help you get there, we're looking for a conceptual fit because otherwise, as you said, go chase somebody else's balance sheet, right? And so really beginning to work with your team to understand how we transition from understanding what that client needs, from the pain step, from understanding the issues, the examples, the impacts, their commitment level of fit, fix, their vision of the solution, to really beginning to transition to say, well, let's spend a little bit of time and really talk through what a high-performing relationship could look like, how we would truly engage with you to help you get where you want to go. But that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to be a fit. So I'll share with you some key philosophies. Because again, if we don't agree on the big picture, it may not make sense to talk to detail, but I'm going to need your key. I'm going to need your inputs on each of these. And then you and I can decide, does it make sense to talk in more detail? And I think beginning to put that conceptual piece in there where we can qualify helps us get the right kind of clients long term, especially since we've got COVID or a crisis as the pretense to be able to do that. Can you give some examples of those conceptual pointers? Sure. I'll give it to you in a couple of different environments, right? So in our environments, it's pretty easy, right? In our environments, one of the things I might say is, so Marcus, one of our, our first philosophies is, in fact, I'm going to use, I'm going to use your words. I'm going to change, I'm going to change what I usually say, because I'm going to adapt, adopt quickly what you just told me. One of our philosophies is, listen, this is not training. This is marketing. This is something that will touch every single one of your clients and your prospects. And with that, it's really taking a look at upping the expectations and changing the culture of the organization. Now, ch- culture changes top down. So you as the leader of the organization, your participation, I don't mean tacit participation, your active participation in what we do is not optional. Should we continue talking? And I want to have that kind of conversation. And you say, well, yeah, yeah, I expected to be involved. And I said, well, no, no, I didn't say involved. I said active participation. Tell me why that would be so important. And I want you, my customer, to be able to convince me why that would be so important. That would be an example of a, and, and again, if you said, well, I don't, you know, well, no, I expected this to be training for the teams. I mean, we hire trainers all the time. So do whatever you do as a trainer. You know, that gives me a point to say, hey, listen, it may not make sense to continue. Listen, I'm not against you throwing money at me. But we have to agree in advance if you want to throw money at me, but you want to play that game that way, we're not going to expect any changes. And if you still want to throw money at me, I can give it a charity. I mean, you've got to have that kind of conversation. But that would be an example of a, of a conceptual one. You know, in the software industry, here's an example of a conceptual one as well. Marcus, I'll tell you, we've got, I think we've got the greatest software in the world. The bad news, it's not even about the software. We've got 
It's got great usability, great flexibility, great scalability, but it's not even about the software. Most software implementations fail even when the software is good. This is going to be about working with you and your team to really take a look at what are the right requirements, dedicating that right kind of resource, spending the time up front to really map out what a success plan looks like, tracking against those milestones. Because if we think it's about the software, we're going to fail. Now, we're going to fail better than most fail, but we're going to fail. Again, I'm making that up as I go along, but that would be an example of trying to, trying to position the correct philosophies to get the right kind of client on board and set the right kind of expectations. Outstanding. That was definitely worth the price of admission for everyone <laughs> who are listening. Go back, play it again, take some notes. Okay. So, John, one final question before we start wrapping up. If you were advising somebody who is early stage in their business, because I suspect it must be a terrifying time, you know, that they probably mm-hmm. left their nice, highly paid job with an income. And they thought, you know, I've had enough of working for idiots. It's time that I work for the tax man for a few, a few months a year. And now they've set up. What advice would you give to them in starting a business up in the depths of this downturn? I think my advice for graduating folks from university, as well as people who started in business, is surround yourself with winners. It's amazing what I hear. Here's one of the things I'm hearing now. You'll never get a job in this economy, not with 25 million people laid off. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You only need one job. You don't need 25 million, right? So to be able to say, well, I'm going to go back for my master's degree. Nothing wrong with a master's degree, but I'm going to go back for for an advanced degree because no one is hiring right now. So I got to think whether you're a new business owner, whether you're a new graduate, surround yourself with, just surround yourself with winners. You and I know, because we've quoted the book by Shad Helmstetter, what you say when you talk to yourself, 78% of what you say to yourself is negative self-talk. I got it. It's why we're on you know, the Jody Williamson No News Challenge, right? So that we're not going to watch the news because it's negative, negative, negative. I think you've got to surround yourself with winners because there are always winners. And the winners are the people who can come into seemingly almost any circumstance and find a way to prevail. And the losers or the non-winners, if we're politically correct, are the people who can come into a great circumstance and turn it around and find a way to whine and, and lose. And so, so be careful about all those messages in your head, because some of them are making assumptions that are just flat out, in my opinion, wrong, as opposed to going with someone who is open-minded. Because there are people there are people who are absolutely succeeding. As you said, a lot of your customers are having the best April ever. You've got six new mastery clients. So my one piece of advice is, Choose your friends wisely. Sandler had a good one-liner in the, in the old days that said, hey, people don't want you to change, right? If they want you to change, they would have started with somebody else in the first place. So when you change, people are intimidated. And so you've really got to find someone who cares about you, who loves you, who's willing to challenge you and surround yourself with winners would be my, for both graduates and new business start. He also said, protect your greatest asset, your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, that negative self-talk is lethal. I always say that you've got five major competitors, fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. And all of those are embodied in that negative Mm self-talk. It's that inner voice. And your biggest competitor is the six inches between your ears. Now, I lied. It wasn't my last question. (laughs) In this market, there is a fantastic opportunity to double down on prospecting, double Mm -hmm. down recruitment, double down on marketing. What is it that people need to do to recruit 
top performers in this market? Because there are a lot of top performers that are uncomfortable with the idea of changing jobs now. So how can you sell them into the move? Well, first of all, if you're a leader and you're doubling down, define doubling down. Does it literally mean double? I don't know if it does, but put metrics in place, right? I think don't just say doubling down because all of us can sort of think about that as merely an inspirational speech. It's time to double down, Marcus. What we want to do is define that double down. And and one of the things I'm preaching to my managers is begin to put metrics in place. I was uh, on the phone yesterday with a sales manager. In fact, one of the sales managers was in the UK and, and they've done a little training out in the UK. The other one, the her manager was in uh, in Chicago here in the United States. And they've since been acquired by a larger publicly traded company and things are going slower. And they've got two, it's in the packaging industry. They've got two, we interview so many people, you and I, Marcus, and it's rare to see somebody standing out. They've got two really nice candidates. And I am working with them to be able to say, hire them both now, even though they're under this corporate structure that's preventing them. How do they become? So put metrics in place. Second is, again, remember, I don't know if it's 50-50, even if they're high performers. If they are high performers, they're constantly looking at how to take it to the next level. And depending upon, in fact, both of these cases, they're high performers. And both of them are dissatisfied with the way their, their company is currently handling the COVID crisis. They see them in hunkering down instead of doubling down, right? They see them laying off, right? They see them being tentative. And these are high performers, and high performers don't want that governor on them. They see their compensation plan changing. So just like it's a great time to reach out to prospects, it's a great time to reach out to prospective recruits in our organization. But we, as sales managers and leaders, have to be proactive in that part, and we've got to define it. And if we define it, we can do it. And defining it needs including making specific decisions about not only what our prospecting or recruiting behavior is, but what are the metrics behind it. Very good advice. I think the conclusion here is playing the safe bet is actually the dangerous bet. You need to make effective decisions and you need to take risk. And I think one of my favorite Sandler rules that comes out of the No Guts, No Gain program is maximize your risk. And Mm -hmm. I think this points to a fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between risking and sacrificing. Our definition of sacrificing is going from higher to lower value, and there is no upside. So I'm walking down the seafront. I see a dog fall in. I jump in to save it, and I drown. I would consider that to be a loss of a higher value. I'm walking down the seafront. My daughter falls in. I save her, but drown in the, the attempt that I would see as a risk because I would value her life higher than mine. And I think we need to be clear that risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what we've got. Absolutely. And we we should be maximizing our risk in this environment. Okay, so what is it that you're being influenced by? What are you reading, listening to, watching that you think, yeah, that's really great material that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, I I mean, one is... Both of these are are a little bit uh, older, but I've really enjoyed reading uh, James Clear, anything from James Clear, who's written Atomic Habits. It has changed my life. There's a couple of books that have affected me that it affects my life on a daily basis. That one does. I mean, I like the idea that as, as much of an A player as we can be, it's not all about willpower and optimism. It's about having your environment work for you as well. 
And so really beginning to think about how you structure your environment to aid you in achieving what you want to achieve. So, and then it's, it, they, it's almost like a peer book to that, even though they're not related in any way. Things out from Benjamin Hardy these days on willpower won't work. And he's got a really good set of online courses going on and all that sort of stuff. And an, old, uh, an older book that I read a while back was called Leadership and Self-Deception. I revisit that every couple of years. That's a really nice book that the, the phrase they use is getting out of the box. And another phrase they use is betraying yourself. So let's talk about risk for a second. Their version of the phrase betraying yourself is if you think of a good thought, something that you should be doing that's positive, and then you don't do it. That would be betraying yourself. When you don't do it, you then spend the mental six inches between your, in your brain to justify all the reasons why you didn't do it. So you begin to demonize as opposed to if you have that thought and it's the right thought, you go ahead and take action. So I've enjoyed James Clear, Benjamin Hardy, Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute have been positives. Now, certainly you've been part of this and my peer group of Jody Williamson and Mark McGraw and the Sandler Network is, has been tremendous. I mean, I think this is a network that has pivoted really, really quickly in very, very positive ways, shared best practices across the organizations, upped expectations, not only for us, but for our clients. It's been a positive place. I've spent more time with my Sandler peers in the last two or three months than I probably have in the previous seven or eight months because we're sharing ideas, we're sharpening each other's thoughts and you know and moving moving to a higher plane fabulous a great book that i think you'll enjoy is the right use of power by peter block i've heard of peter block but i don't know the right use of power power so thank you it's a wonderful book around leadership ethics which again i think we don't talk about anywhere near enough and that's something i'm running a whole series of podcasts around so really looking forward to that okay you've got a golden ticket and you can advise the invincible immortal 23-year-old idiot John on how to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage. What advice would you give him? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's some traits that the young John hasn't changed. I mean, I've always been a grinder. I've always been a fighter. I've always been uh, persistent in that regard. I think the advice I gave a little earlier would fit. Filter out the information and understand and be a possibility thinker. I think I was definitely a hustler but I was a bit of a scarcity thinker, right? It's a zero-sum game. If I get my slice of the pie, that may be a slice or smaller slice for someone else, but at least I got my slice of the pie. I was going to make sure, you know, coming out of the Bronx, New York, that I at least survived. And really, I think the change would be is protect that mindset, be a possibility thinker, understanding that the impact that you have makes it a bigger pie. And then choose to surround yourself, as I said earlier, choose to, to surround yourself. That's with, with the people who think like winners. And that's been the best part of being part of the Sandler Network and hanging out with Marcus and some of the folks I've gotten to know is these are possibility thinkers who expand your horizon, who pull you, even when I want to retreat back to my scarcity mindset, who can pull me into abundance and creativity and, and living it up and creating a larger impact. So. I would say I'm a much bigger possibility thinker now. How many years later? I don't know how many years later. 50, 20, 25, 30, 30 years later, 35 years later than I was as a 20-whatever-year-old. As a 20-year-old, I was like, listen, keep your nose clean, do your work, take care of things, and things will work out, as opposed to really beginning to think about how you can impact the world and the rest of it takes care of itself. 
I think this also feeds into this partnership philosophy. When we wrote Making Channel Sales Work, we were operating from the fundamental premise that partners help each other get better. And I think that is such a healthy mindset and a healthy way of living and doing business. And the problem is the minute you make yourself the center of attention and it's me, 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 it's I-centered, then you find yourself in deep trouble. John, this has been really very insightful, incredibly informative. Tell me something. What are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with at the moment? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's, I'm part of a program called Strategic Coach. I think it's worldwide probably now. And I just had a call with one of my coaches a little while back. And one of the things that she brought up is, again, you're thinking too short-term and you're thinking tactical. As you know, I had multiple Sandler offices. I sold my Pittsburgh office. I downsized to some degree, certainly from an employee basis. And then COVID hit almost simultaneously. And it was, all right, let's pivot, let's adapt. But some of the advice I gave earlier came from my coach yelling, not really yelling, but yelling at me saying, well, what have, the, what have been the steps you've taken from a recruiting standpoint? What have been the steps that you've taken to sort of lay out what that vision looks like for your organization? Well, no, I've just been trying to get through this, right? So sort of what, what I've been is back on this view to take a few steps back and really think through what's the organization look like three months, six months, a year, five years from now? And then how do I go ahead and put in those proactive behaviors that I've been preaching, but not always been doing because I've been tied up in, hey, let's make sure we're keeping the ship afloat. Let's pivot effectively. And that was, a, that was like a frying pan to the side of the head because I've been saying it, but I'm like, man, talk about a blind spot. And that's why you need coaches. Absolutely. I mean, I've got six coaches at the moment and they, they help me in lots of different areas. And I was working on a great master plan and my coach said to me, hmm, so if you could only do 50% of that, which 50% would you do? And that was a blinding strike to the side <laughs> because I realized I was overcomplicating it. And take John's advice, get help. One of the things that I teach my younger clients to do in particular is reach out to people whose history is your future and mm, ask them, would great. they be willing to be your mentor? for 20 minutes a month. Don't ever waste their time. Come with one important question and with three ways that you've tried to resolve the problem yourself. And it's incredible how many people will say yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's certainly been a fabulous piece of advice that people have been using. John, how can people get hold of you? Let's see, uh, John Rosso, J-O-H-N-R-O-S-S-O, -S uh, same in the email address, John, J-O-H-N dot Rosso, R-O-S-S-O, that's sandler.com, S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. Our website is performance.sandler.com. And heck, you can even reach out to me on US phone, 412-401-3756, 412-401-3756. Excellent, John. Thank you. As ever, massive inspiration. Cannot thank you enough. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks so much. Pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you would be a good guest or you know someone you would like me to interview for the podcast, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.